Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. And I'm Steve Bird. And welcome back to Marvel Reread Club. All right, guys, last episode of this podcast, we arrived at a huge month in Marvel history. We arrived at March 1963. We went ahead and covered the three of the seven books released that month, and we recorded at least an hour uh, talking about those and realized that because you know we had a major debut, we had Spider-Man number one that we discussed last episode, we've got another huge debut in this episode. So we figured we would go ahead and split this month into two. We'll see if we end up doing this more regularly from now on. But uh, regularly is one of the hardest words for me to say. <laughs> uh, so meanwhile, um, one thing that apropos of nothing, and I probably should have brought this up in the previous episode, just thinking of these things in terms of the time in which they happened and the time in which they came out. Uh, The Cuban Missile Crisis was in October of 1962. These books are cover dated March of 1963, but that meant that they probably hit the stands in, what, November of 62 or so, and were probably written before that. Uh, so I just want to, you know, place people in that world that, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis was going on while, you know, had just happened when kids were reading this issue. Uh, well, and we saw one of the things the Metal Master was doing in the Hulk is he was, the Soviets are test firing some missiles. Let me destroy those missiles. And here's some MiGs and let me destroy these MiGs. So I did wonder when I read that, like, oh, is this inspired by the Cuban Missile Crisis just having gone down? And uh, so I don't know whether they would have still been writing it at the point when that happened, because I don't know what the kind of lead time was at this point in Marvel's history. One way or the other, it's we're around that period of time. So uh, just I, I, I find that, and you know, as a old history major myself from college, uh, I always find that kind of stuff very interesting. Yes. OK, so. All right. Should we go ahead? Uh, we could ask each other how we've been since we last talked. But of course, we last talked mere seconds ago because we're recording two episodes in one night. We, so never, stopped, we never stopped talking. Well, <laughs> well I, I, I meant to say we never stopped talking. But I realized the way I said that, I said, we never stopped talking, which is also true. Which, <laughs> it's which, also true. Which reminds me of our mom, from whom we get that, was uh, once, once she asked uh, her friend, the late Louis King, why are you always interrupting me? <laughs> Louis responded, because you're always talking. <laughs> Yep. So, yeah, that's us. That's where we come that's from. Us. So we're not going to pretend that we haven't seen each other in a while because we just recorded that episode and then instantly moved on to record this episode because we are we are doing all of March 1963 in one night, but you're going to be getting in two separate episodes. Just call so us let's Kang. Go ahead just call us Kang. So let's go ahead and jump to Journey into Mystery number 90, starring the mighty Thor battling the, su- battling the super creature from space, the carbon copy man which I don't believe he is called inside the book. We have, and again, looking away, he never looks inside the book. He is a giant red crystal person on the cover. And he says, in another second, you will be eternally trapped in a block of unbreakable ice. This is the end of the mighty Thor. So we've already had this issue of, it seems like especially a Thor issue where he fights aliens who don't have a consistent thing. And being a carbon copy man 
and turning yourself into crystal and freezing someone in a block of ice, none of that lines up at all. Like That's not like, oh, a carbon copy as in freezing someone in a block of ice. Yes, I can see how that's a carbon copy, man. Have you thought of carbonite, Matt? I mean, seriously. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, freezing and carbonite. Yes. So um, on on this cover, this cover looks like it was drawn by Kirby. Well, laid out by Kirby. The the characters in the background definitely have Kirby poses that are going on. But uh, yeah, they do. Inked very heavily by uh, Dick um, Dick Ayers. But uh, there's a weird. There's something weird going on with the hill that's right above the heads of the two characters in the middle. So uh, right underneath the nose cone of the ship. That is a really, really dark line that's there. And it's, it's, I'm not liking it at all. It's causing some real problems with um, what we call in art tangents with the hand and everything else. It's just really, I don't, I don't like it. I just want to say that. (laughs) All right. Noted. Yes. So then then meanwhile, this, issue is drawn by al hartley so what does al hartley usually do matt i don't know what does al hartley usually do oh okay i assumed that you knew uh patsy walker ah this is one of their girl book artists uh okay i did not know that i i read this and i wondered who the hell al hartley was because i can tell you one thing he sucks (laughs) this is (laughs) this is a it terrible has, looking it, book. It, it has a charm to it. I mean, you know, it, it's it's not appropriate for to the to the material. But um, I, I I let me put it this way: if the, he became the regular artist going forward, I would not be happy. But as one little you know interregnum issue here, while they're trying to figure out what they're doing with the art, I, I actually found it kind of uh, charming in a certain way. But uh, well, of course, we know that in retrospect, uh, we know that eventually Kirby would return. But at the time, they didn't know that. They were like, oh, my God, these poor people buying their comic books in March 1963 are like, Kirby has gone from every book. Kirby has gone from four of his five books. And, you know, it's like, oh, here's Hulk. They've got Dicko. That's great. But then each of the four books has a different artist replacing Kirby. And this is the worst of the four. Al Hartley does a terrible job with this book. And, yes, I can see how he is a romance, I guess. Certainly, Thor does have luxuriant hair in this comic. So <laughs> I guess I can see how he's normally a romance uh, writer, a romance artist. He does pencil and ink his work in this issue. But so, yes. So we begin far beyond our galaxy on the warlike planet Zarta. Now, one thing I think was interesting this month is in our various, we've got alien attackers in at least three issues this month. And I find it interesting how often Stan Lee goes out of his way to make it clear that this is not an evil alien race, that this is an alien race that has good people and bad people in it. And often you'll have a case where, you know, it's a peaceful race and there's one warlike person who then has come to Earth because he's not welcome on his home planet. You'll see that twice this month. And I think it's great. There's been a real pushback recently in like the fantasy fan community going like, can we have a ban on evil races? <laughs> like. <laughs> Unlike, you know, everybody in this race is evil because that's a dangerous idea to bring over to the real world. And in this case, you do have a warlike, the whole planet is warlike, but you they've got personalities and there's a father and son here and they've got sort of a father and son interacting. It says, our mighty warlord approaches with his son at his side. This is a proud moment for old Ugarth. And then old Ugarth is then interacting with his son who wants to prove himself. Anyway, so they come to Earth. And so then, meanwhile, on Earth, 
Don Blake has decided to go ahead and tell Jane everything. He, well, it's funny. He turns himself into Thor so he can tell Jane everything. Then he turns back to Don Blake, goes to Jane, and is about to tell her, Jane, I must speak to you. I have something important to say. When suddenly Odin appears in front of Thor's face, Jane can't see her. And Odin says, heed my words, Lord of Thunder. You are bound never to reveal your identity to any other mortal. I have spoken. So I'm not sure it was clear before this issue that the reason Don couldn't tell Jane how he felt is because Odin had forbidden it. I think that may be introduced here. So. Is yeah, that I true? Think in, I think it's introduced here. So which makes more sense that uh, that this is a better obstacle to be between them rather than just him being too weak-willed uh, to go ahead and tell her how he feels. And so then he instantly changes his mind, says, never mind, my dad says not. Meanwhile, out on the street, mm-hmm. suddenly everybody is acting like jerks. And everybody on the street is acting like jerks says, hey, you guys are supposed to paste that cigarette ad on the billboard, not on the side of our building. And people are acting like jerks in various ways. And Don Blake's like, what's going on? Why are people acting like jerks? And then he comes back to Jane, and Jane is acting like a jerk. I refuse to work for a soft-hearted fool, especially when he's a quack who doesn't know the first thing about medicine. Goodbye. And... Then Thor does something that is very much more like a DC comic book than a Marvel comic book. Thor decides, I'm going to go see the mayor. I'm going to go see Mayor Harris. So Marvel would, over the years, try to avoid having fictional mayors and fictional presidents. But here we have a fictional mayor. He does not go see Mayor Lindsay. He goes and sees Mayor Harris. (laughs) But Mayor Harris is also acting crazy. And he's like, what am I going to do? And he flies to a mountaintop and wonders what he should do. And then he seems to think back to his school days on Asgard. And there's someone who may or may not be Odin or may just be a school teacher teaching someone who looks like Thor and someone else who looks exactly like Thor and teaching them saying when something puzzles you. So this is sort of like, this is sort of like, it's a wonderful life when he's like in trouble, ask your father. And he pictures himself warning in class, when something puzzles you, always seek the simplest, most obvious explanation, no matter how impossible it may seem. For remember, nothing is truly impossible. And so then Thor says, the simplest, most obvious explanation. If people are not acting like themselves, then they must not be themselves. They must be imposters. So the simplest explanation of the girl I like acting like a jerk to me is that she has been replaced by an alien imposter. That's the only possible explanation. Because Jane has never acted like a jerk to him before. I mean, no, never, never happened. Uh, Never had any inkling that anything like that might happen. Uh, So there was there was one. What what was I going to say here about? uh, Oh, oh, just um, when when people were doing weird things, there was also because this becomes important later on the bottom of page three. Someone's saying, what is this? Some No, I guess it's uh, actually Don Blake says, what is this? Some kind of gag? And meanwhile, a guy is saying, but I don't want to walk in the gutter. And the cop is saying, sorry, buddy, it's commissioner's orders. He says car owners are richer and more important than pedestrians. So they get to use the sidewalk. So now people are driving on the sidewalk and pedestrians have to walk in the gutters. Uh, and this is part of the havoc that these folks are wrecking on uh, human society. Okay. I'm yes. Sorry. Go on. So then, so then... Thor decides to investigate, finds an alien spaceship, gets magnetized to the side of the alien spaceship, you know, can't get to his hammer, turns back into Don Blake. He has taken on board the alien spaceship, finds the mayor and Jane, who are the two most important people who have been kidnapped. And so they're the they're the two people who the aliens are interrogating. And then they show, they explain that, you know, we have the ability to impersonate anybody. And one of them transforms into Don Blake, says, we'll take your place now. And 
then Don Blake's like, wait, I'll betray Thor. I'll go ahead and hand Thor over to you if you'll just let me go. And both Jane and the mayor are just horrified by this. But Don says, nope, I'm going to do it. So he takes him outside, says, Thor went off that away and points them off to the trees. And then when they're gone, he goes and grabs his hammer. And then he is fighting them. Then suddenly, now I would say this is a case for like, oh, Kirby has left the book. And so now the book is adrift. But it's not like this wouldn't happen with Kirby too, right. where suddenly the villain would run out of concept and would need a brand new concept on page eight, where suddenly these people whose power before this had been the power to impersonate anybody are then like, wait, we can also change into ice creatures and freeze you in a block of ice. And we can also then become sword and sandal gladiators. And we can go ahead and, you know, I'll turn into a gladiator and throw a net on you and attack you with my sword. Right. And, and, and spe- then and specifically calling out that this is a kind of warrior from Earth's past. And, yes. uh, and, and and then talking about how much skill it takes to hurl the deadly net. And it's like, okay, so I just now turned myself into an ancient warrior from your culture, and now I suddenly know how to use all the weapons, which I'm talking about how we're very difficult to learn how to use. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, but so by, then, the, by the way, how are these not the scrolls? Are these like, I know. Are these like the scrolls you buy off of Wish? <laughs> yes, they are they are a much lamer version of the scrolls. It should just be the scrolls. They they're reluctant to reuse alien races. It's very clear. But so then they so then first they're like, okay, we're gonna become ice creatures and freeze about ice. Now we're going to become a gladiator and drop you under a net. And when neither of those work, now we're going to become invisible and beat you up while we're invisible. So nothing makes sense here. Nothing connects to each other. So they're trying to be clear about how many times he taps his hammer. First, he taps his hammer three times to turn it into lightning to strike them with lightning. And then he taps it twice to make it rain. And then when he makes it rain, that makes them a, makes it clear where they are when they're invisible. And then luckily there is that net. So he's able to throw the net over them, fling them out into space, all of the invading. There's a huge invading fleet, but they see their leader being flung into space on a net and they're like, up, oh, reverse all engines, follow Ugarth, prepare for a space rescue, and the entire thing leaves Earth. And then we have bringing home how similar these people are to the scrolls. They borrow the ending of the scroll issue of Fantastic Four, where they're left with five villains on Earth, and they're saying they're saying we shall keep Ugarth's son and his companions as hostages to make certain the Zartans never again invade us. And then they're like, well, but what are we going to do? The aliens can change themselves into anything. They're too dangerous to keep around. And he's like, oh, well, we'll just get them. We'll just get them to turn themselves into trees. And they're like, but then they'll just says, but for how long will they remain trees? The Zartans can absorb another form whenever they wish. And they turn into trees and Thor says, yes, I know, but this is the last change they shall ever make, for when they impersonate something, they take on all its traits, and since trees cannot think, neither can the Zartans, therefore the idea of changing can never occur to them again. So it's like, we didn't kill them, we just turned them into brainless trees that can never think again, so it's fine. It, it, it was it was just like, imagine a lobotomy, but more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and then, of course, I love how the mayor says... Of course, we should have realized that. It's like, no, no, you shouldn't have. So, so then, mm-hmm. so, yeah, so, so Thor with his two trusty sidekicks, Jane Foster and the mayor, uh, wraps up the issue. So then Thor explains, has to explain to Jane and the mayor, oh, one thing more, do not be harsh with Dr. Blake. He only pretended to betray me. By so doing, he actually helped me. And neither of them is buying this at all. The mayor said, 
I don't understand, but I'll take the word of Thor anytime. And then Don goes blank to Jane and she's like, and he said you helped him, though I can't really see how. It was probably by keeping out of his way. And he says, well, don't be too disappointed in me. After all, Jane, we can't all be as brave as Thor. And and he turns to the camera and basically winks at us. And then that's the end of the issue. Because, so, Jane, because Jane, in, Jane in these early issues is always the worst. She is always the worst. So I think this was a terrible issue. Of all the books that people were going to be worried about what's going to happen to Marvel now that Kirby has left four of his five books, this is the book that I think would be the most worrying. This is, I would say, the worst Marvel comic we've read for this podcast so far. It, it very much feels like a Larry Lieber comic. As a matter of yes. fact, um, the you know, as much as you know, Al Hartley is a great artist on the material that he is that he is uh, uh, well suited to. He's not very good with many of the things here, but some of the stuff about the aliens and their technology and the way they look actually reminds me a little bit of Larry Lieber's art that I've seen in other stories from these early days. Yeah. And I don't and I don't know whether that's just a coincidence or whether Al was like, dude, I do girl comics like, you know, I do the the silly adventures of Patsy Walker and her friends. You know, it's I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I almost wonder if Larry Lieber might have gone in and lent a hand on some of the alien stuff here. Yeah, that is a good that is a good point. That is entirely possible. But so, yeah, the, these aliens make no sense. They have no cohesive concept behind them they are all over the map and there is certainly no cleverness to this story the degree to which it is clever is entirely borrowed from the much better fantastic four story where they fought the scrolls i'd say this uh, i'd say this issue is a huge ringing alarm bell that we may be in big trouble without jack kirby uh so uh two things one uh and this is something i just noticed uh in my reread this past time there is a panel right towards the end here where we see oh yes so on the bottom of page 12 look at the uh at panel five page 12 look at thor's hammer yes oh whoops <laughs> the hammerhead has the hammerhead is missing. It's just a it's just the hammer handle, and that's it. Nothing else. I have no yeah. idea how that happens, but you can't. I guess you can't blame Vince Coletta on this one. <laughs> Vince Coletta, you you have gone ahead and struck before you even arrived at Marvel. Yes. Clearly, it was like, well, if I draw on the hammerhead, then you will be able to see Jane running toward him to hug him. But then, so I'll just leave it out. Um, yeah, and you could have easily just deleted the entire hammer from that from that right. picture, but uh, uh, truly, truly terrible, truly terrible. <laughs> so, um, uh, but the other thing I was going to say is when you were talking about how they're you know being very careful to talk about the number of taps that he has to do for these things, you know. I listen to podcasts on my ear pods all the time. And, you know, there are little controls that you have by tapping the ear pods, you know, yes. one time or two times or whatever. I, I cannot tell you the number of times, usually in a given day, when I try to tap it twice, but I accidentally tap it three times and then Siri comes in. It's like, what can I help you with? I'm like, shut up, Siri. I never am looking to talk to you. Um, and I, I just can't imagine that Thor wouldn't end up being like, oh, I'm going to do my quadruple tap, 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 tap. Wait, no, that one is supposed to be with. Ugh. 
<laughs> yeah. So I know I wanted lightning. Instead, I got a rainstorm. Ugh. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully that won't be allowed around that much longer. I don't think it is. Uh, the, 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 the hammer keeps on getting some other weird powers, but I don't think that the multiple taps thing stays around for that much longer. So, yeah, it's funny. I talked about how on all of the books where Kirby was replaced on three of the four books where Kirby was replaced, they very pointedly jettison some dumb element of Kirby of the Kirby comic. And Thor is the one case where that's not true. They don't, they don't immediately jettison any element of Kirby Thor here because there was nothing wrong with Kirby Thor. So they, uh, there was no one thing about Kirby Thor where it's like, yeah, because I feel like we've spent so much time on this podcast talking about like, oh, there's this dumb thing in these early issues of Ant-Man or Human Torch or Hulk and I don't think that's around much longer. I don't feel like they do that for much longer. Well, we didn't realize that, yeah, that's they're going to get rid of that as soon as Kirby's gone. Yeah. And there was nothing we've been saying with Thor where it's like, oh, that's not around much longer. I guess the taps on the hammer, but that they have not gotten rid of. Uh, but that may not be around much longer. But there is no element of this issue where let's instantly get rid of something Kirby was doing, as we'll see in our next couple of issues. Yes. So I believe we're moving on next to Strange Tales. Is that correct? Yes. So here is the most notable example of let's instantly get rid of the one really dumb element of this book when Kirby was in charge of it, when Kirby was supposedly just the artist of it, but was in fact doing some of the writing as well. So we have Strange Tales 106. You've got the whole Fantastic Four here on the cover. Sue is saying, Reed, do something. The torch is wounded. He hasn't a chance. Reed is saying, we can't sue. This is the way he wants it. So see the human torch fighting for his life against the acrobat in the threat of the torrid twosome. They make it sound like this is... They make it sound like Johnny Storm is not himself a member of the Torrid Twosome in that description, but we will find out that he is. And it says, don't miss the guest appearance of the Fantastic Four in this great issue. And it has Johnny with a broken arm. We'll find out a arm that's been shot with a bullet, which is not on fire, fighting a truly impressive acrobat who is tumbling all around. Yes. Um, and uh, But spoiler alert, this will be a pretty lame issue. It will be, but it will be <laughs> absolutely essential issue i think it's a lot better than the thor issue and this is more importantly an absolutely essential issue in the history of johnny storm's strange tales because oh dear god we're finally getting rid of we're finally not just getting rid of but mocking the big problem with this book so we begin with the human torch is going through a whole obstacle course he is enjoying himself then he the at, at the house he shares with Sue, we see a Frenchman in a beret shows up, rings the doorbell. It says, good day, miss. My name is Carl Zant. I would like to speak to the Human Torch. And then meanwhile, the Human Torch is landing in the alleyway behind the place. And they have him. This is not a retcon. This is not like, okay, let's pretend that never happened. They are leaning into this. They're going like, okay, let's make it very clear that Johnny thinks he has a secret identity. He says, I'll land out of sight and change into civvies. Flame off. Boy, the pains I take to keep my identity a secret, even to hiding my clothes in an alley, but unseen by Johnny. And there's two kids who are like, look, Ben, it's the torch. He's changing his duds. Must have just returned from practice. Yeah, he usually gets back around this time. 
go back to Johnny, totally unaware, thinking if anyone in town ever discovered that I was the human torch, I'd never have a moment's privacy. Then, all right, already on page three. Johnny, Johnny is clearly a himbo. Kirby has not been gone from this book for three pages, and suddenly they are throwing him under the bus because Johnny comes home and it says minutes later, going, this is Mr. Zant, Johnny. He's been waiting for you. It's a pleasure to meet the famous Hugh and Torch. And he says, Torch? But how? How did you know who I was? And then it, it falls to the acrobat to give the bad news to Johnny. He says, surely you just, everybody knows that Johnny Storm and the fabulous Fireboy are one and the same person. And then Sue is instantly like, of course, Johnny, all Glenville knows of your dual role. And Johnny says, holy cow, and all this time I thought I was hiding it so cleverly. Well, I'll be, but if everybody knew, why didn't they say anything? And she says, no one ever mentioned it to you because you yourself never spoke of it. They assumed you wanted privacy and they respected your desire. And so, okay, so Kirby has been thrown under the bus. The whole secret identity thing is not only abjured from this point on to put they talk about how stupid it was and how nobody ever would have fallen for this for a second and nobody did they were all just pretending to believe in his secret identity which oh thank god it is nice to have that element of the book gone it's a shame we had to lose jack kirby to make it happen but so as i was saying last time you know i've always said well i believe stan is writing these books because the books didn't change that much with jack gone and this time i'm reading this i'm going like okay, there is sort of a sense that the writer has left the book. There is sort of a sense in three of these four comics that Kirby has left that it's like, uh, we're going off in a new direction now, thanks. And this does feel like, okay, a writer, this does feel like a change of writer. And it is, this is changing my view of the whole thing. Yeah, it's, you know, once again, there's a whole thing of what's writing. I mean, and we've already talked about this a number of times, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more times going forward. But, you know, the whole thing about the Marvel method as advertised, you know, as they hyped as one of their part of their secret sauce was that essentially the artist was collaborating in the storytelling, wasn't just drawing pictures, but was actually a storyteller. So, you know, that's always been kind of you know, not just the subtext, but the actual text of what they're saying. There's just the question then of, but what does that mean? Does that mean that that other storyteller is a writer or not? Yes. Um, and that ends up getting to be, you know, somewhat of a semantic argument. Although in the end, it also ends up being a legal and financial argument as well. And that's where things really start to, uh, you know, the wheels come off the bus in several years. So then the acrobat then says right in front of, well, I guess, yeah, Sue leaves him alone. Now I'll leave you two alone for your man talk. And then the acrobat says, I'm here to get you to quit the Fantastic Four and join me in the terrific twosome. And then you've been undervalued by the Fantastic Four. They're underpaying you. They are not recognizing that you've been doing so much of the work. And he says, um, he says, golly, I never looked at things that way before. It's true that Reed keeps most of the reward money himself, but he uses it for scientific research. And the acrobat says, of course, to increase his own prestige. But what about your prestige? He says, yeah, that's right. Maybe he has been playing me for a sucker. So then Johnny flies off to confront the Fantastic Four, or at least to confront Reed and Ben. And so for the second time this month, somebody asked to get paid by the Fantastic Four. For the second time this month, Reed says, no, I don't think we'll be doing that. Then for the second time this month, that person then storms away 
<laughs> and uh, just as Freed is saying, Johnny, wait. And so Johnny storms out when he finds out he's not going to get paid anything. And he goes back to, uh, he goes back and calls the acrobat and says, yeah, let's do it. I'm quitting the Fantastic Four. I'm joining up with you. We then see Johnny with a sewing machine, sewing an awesome new outfit, a green and orange outfit with a two on it instead of a four. It comes with an awesome beret, an orange beret, because he's joining a Frenchman. His French secondary color mambo jambo is going to drive the ladies bananas. <laughs> yes. Um, does it say that? Does it say drive the ladies bananas? Or does it say that? No, 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 no. No, it doesn't. I'm, that was my comment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was prepared to believe that was here. But... <laughs> no, no, that was actually, I think that was actually a line I, I took from some uh, uh, like. HGTV show with somebody uh, uh, making a joke at some point, but <laughs> yeah. Anyway, one way or the other. Um, yeah, that this this is a uh, this is a a. It's an ugly outfit. B. You know that he is now a bad guy because his outfit is made of secondary colors instead of primary colors. Yes, yes, but he can't figure that out, or at least no. he seems not to be able to figure that out. So then, uh, and he's got they're so here are these guys. They're in awesome matching orange berets. And then he instantly, the acrobat is like, uh, yeah, okay, here's our first case we're going to solve. That's There's somebody locked in a bank vault. I want you to go over there and melt your way into the bank vault. And Johnny's like, okay. And then he goes to the bank and melts his way into the bank vault, only to find, hey, there's nobody trapped in here. And then the acrobat comes up and it's like, yes, this was all just a ruse to get you to open the bank vault. Then he sprays Johnny with liquid asbestos. And it's like, okay, well, that's a very super villain type thing to do. I have a liquid asbestos spray gun. And then he pulls out another type of gun, a gun gun. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, and now for you, Torch, stay back. Don't rush me. I warn you. And then just shoots him flat out with bullets from a gun. Uh, and <laughs> which you don't, which you don't see that much in, in old Marvel comics. You, know? you don't. And right. he hits him. Johnny gets a bullet in the arm. He goes down. And the guy then tries to just blow Johnny away with a bunch more bullets, but the gun jams. And then people come in. The robbery is interrupted. The acrobat is trying to escape. He gets out to his car, but then there's Reed and Ben and Sue. Reed and Ben and Sue stop the acrobat. Johnny comes out. He can't fire up his arm because it's you know bleeding, hit by a bullet. But he can fire up the rest of him. And he says, wait, let me grab the acrobat. Then the acrobat gets away and Johnny is able to catch him, melts the road so that the acrobat's feet stick to the stick to the road. And then Johnny reveals the Fantastic Four. I never really believed Zant, but I figured I had to string along with him to figure out what he was after. And they go, I'm not sure Reed believes this, but Reed says, no. forget it, partner. You don't have to explain to us. The important thing is you're back. Not that you just flat out lied to us. And right. I okay, I just added that. And then Sue says, I brought something along for you, Johnny. And he says, I figured you wouldn't, sis. So then he goes out to a back alley, gets naked, takes off his <laughs> takes off his secondary color French outfit and puts on his primary color American outfit. And they go, Feel better, squirt, says, You know it. This is how things should be. And this is how they will be always. Amen. The end. Yeah. The, uh, so the artist here, Dick Ayers, who ha we have been seeing as the primary anchor for Kirby through uh, most of these books that we've been doing, he is a good penciler, generally. I am not as big a fan of him as an inker. And so him inking himself, you know, it's 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 okay. 
yeah, it's but I, I do like a lot of his facial expressions. I really like uh, like on page three where the acrobat or Zont, I was thinking Zonte, but, you know, whatever, okay. uh, where where he was, um, you know, showing off his skills. I really love that shot where he is doing a handstand on his two index fingers. Yes, he does some really nice stuff in here. I'm I'm I uh, really kind of like. Uh, like I said, Dick Ayer's pencils, if not his inks. Yeah, I like his art. I think that, you know, of the four artists that replaced Kirby this month, he is not the best who would be Dicko, but he's certainly not the worst who would be Al Hartley on Thor. And Ayer's is going to be, Ayer's, unlike Al Hartley, is going to stick around on the superhero books. Well, he's going to draw this superhero book for a while, and then eventually he's going to move over to replace Kirby when Kirby leaves Sergeant Fury, and he's going to, that's going to, be where Ayers really gets a chance to shine. Ayers is going to do a good job on that book. He's not doing as strong a work on The Strange Tales, Human Torch, but he does fine. He He's able to, you know, I think there's a lot of artists out there who would rather be doing war books than superhero books. Certainly a lot of artists who shined on the EC war books who then were like, uh, do I have to start doing superhero books now? Uh, certainly John Severin being the most notable. And you get the feeling that Ayers was happier to end up on a war book than he was to end up on the superhero book. But he's going to be the artist on this book for quite some time. And he does a pretty good job. I think he, uh, I I always like it when people ink themselves. I think that he, there are certain advantages to him inking himself on this book rather than inking Kirby on this book. And again, he's able to do more. He's able to use blacks heavier than Kirby was able to use them. And I think it's a it's a nice book. I certainly <laughs> Acrobat is a distinctive villain. The guys in the matching berets are awesome. <laughs> uh, awesome with air quotes, right? <laughs> no, no. They're gen- no, not air quotes. They're genuinely <laughs> awesome. I love that they each have berets. Um, uh, awesome, like on National Lampoon's European Vacation, where he's, the kid's got the beret on and he thinks he's getting the attention of the ladies, but he finds out they're laughing at him. I mean, like that kind of awesome. <laughs> like that kind of awesome, I guess. <laughs> so we already had Johnny fighting Pacepot Pete a couple of issues ago, who had an even more awesome beret. Now he's, as he's... Now, the now, villain... Pace, now Pacepot Pete's beret. <laughs> that was epic. <laughs> I think Johnny's villains will get progressively smaller berets issue after issue until finally <laughs> 10 issues from now we'll have a villain with just the world's tiniest beret on. With like a like a little steampunk <laughs> mini beret kind of thing. So, um, so, so meanwhile though, liquid asbestos. Asbestos is made of some kind of mineral. Like it's, it's just like shredded silicate something or other. And uh, so I'm like liquid as what would liquid asbestos, but it's okay. No, that's fine. It's just, yes. it's like transistors later, you know, it's just does whatever it needs to do. We're certainly going to get to lots of transistors this month. Yes, absolutely. So uh, as a matter of fact, is that our next, uh, is that our next book? All right. So yes, that is our next book. This is a huge moment for Marvel comics. This is, a big turning point for Marvel, and this would later be the starting point for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So far, we have had every month the various anthology books have had, one by one, the anthology books have had superheroes added to them. We had Thor added to Journey into Mystery. We had Johnny, uh, the Human Torch, added to Strange Tales. And we had Ant-Man added to Tales to Astonish. But Tales of Suspense was still just doing sci-fi and suspense stories. And then suddenly, no, it is the last one anthology book to fall because now it has a superhero added to it too it says who or what is the newest most breathtaking most sensational superhero of all 
Iron Man. He lives, he walks, he conquers. And we see mysterious hands putting the armor together saying, who, who, who? says from the talented bullpen where the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Thor, and other favorite superheroes were born. So in this we get, we're introduced to the work of Mr. Don Heck, who yes. is somebody who has a poor reputation over the years uh, in Marvel. Uh, I, in going back and reading these old initial Iron Man books, have actually come to have a real genuine affection for his work. As a matter of fact, I went and bought the, uh, there's a, not a coffee table book because it's like paperback size, but a book of Don Heck, you know, uh, looking at Don Heck's art through comics through the years. Uh, I think it's called uh, Don Heck, a piece of, like a, a work of art. I think is what it's called. But uh, so, and I did that because I was going back and reading these and actually really enjoy his work, which um, is not, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to say it's not the strongest um, position in the world to take. There are a lot of people who are going to get on my case about that, but um, I really like his stuff, particularly when he's doing the Tony Stark parts. Uh, yes. You know, he does a really good job with that. Yeah. I think Heck was another artist who, was not ideally suited for superheroes, would have been better suited for other things. I uh, always liked the way he did Tony Stark better than the way he did Iron Man. But let me say, I am a big non-Heck fan. I am someone who really, really, really came to dislike his work on The Avengers. I think he is better on Iron Man than he was on The Avengers. I think he is better on Ant-Man. So he's going to do the remaining two books we have this month. He is going to start Iron Man off and, and stay on Iron Man for years. He is also going to take over Hank Pym, Ant-Man this month. So, and at first, Don Heck's not bad. He's thinking himself yeah. and he's doing, there's there's something a little almost Bernie Krigstein-esque about his work. Or it, it's sort of like, mm-hmm. he's got an illustrative style that yes. sort of feels like, you know, almost like a Saturday evening post spot illustrator. He 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 would have been able to get work at the Mad Men offices. Yes, yes. But <laughs> yeah, he, he uh, does, and, and and I I and I like that. I I really do like that. Now, yes, he does get a bad reputation later, and I actually think that a lot of that is because the um, stable of inkers that Marvel had was mainly geared towards working well with Kirby. Yes, and that they do not work well with. You know, so if you work well with the Kirby, you're probably not going to work well with uh, with Don Heck. And so when he no longer is inking his own stuff and they bring in some of their other standard inkers, I think that really, really puts him at a disadvantage in terms of how his work is presented. And, you know, it's it's funny when it comes to other people inking Heck. One thing I've noticed is there were a couple of issues a number a couple of years from now where uh, Vince Coletta inks Don Heck and they both are better in that combo than either of them are combined <laughs> with anyone else. I don't and I, 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 I honestly, like ironically think that if those two had been paired together on a regular basis, both of their reputations would be better today. And it would have meant having fewer heck or collected books if they had both been on the same book. So that would have been wonderful. <laughs> but I, okay. you know, I feel like heck is best off inking himself. Uh, yes. Later, he will be inked by other people on the Avengers and it will look for the most part atrocious, but then they'll play around with his anchors on the Avengers. Yes. And for a while they'll be like, well, let's try going in a different direction. So they have Wally Wood ink him for a few issues, which is yep. fascinating. And, 
And they they have John Romita ink in yes. when, when Romita first shows up at Marvel. And yeah, it's uh, uh and that's gorgeous. That's yes. really nice. Looking. Yes, so Romita inking heck works. Well, I would inking heck works. In both cases, they're sort of working against heck strengths. Both Romita and Wood are just sort of overriding heck and turning them into, you know, making those books more like Romita or Wood books than they look like heck books. But Heck, on the other hand, when he's thinking himself, does better work than some other anchors do on him, and he is playing to his strengths. He's got this very illustrative style, which is, and this is a good book. I can't deny this is a good book. This is a good first issue. And, you know, obviously, this is a great first issue. And this, so let's go and talk about this issue. The first thing you notice when you read this issue is how faithful the Iron Man movie was in adapting this issue. Yes. This is the most faithfully adapted issue in the entire MCU, I would say. There is no MCU movie that adapts a comic book story as faithfully as the first Iron Man movie, the first half hour of the first Iron Man movie, adapts this comic. And it's a real tribute to the work that Lee and Heck are doing here, that they did the story that was able to be transposed to the year 2008 so seamlessly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it really is pretty much beat for beat the same story. I mean, you know, obviously transposed from Vietnam to Afghanistan. Although the fact that it was in Vietnam, I remember when we were kids, the, the, they, they, the Marvel was very, very lucky that the Vietnam War lasted as long as it did <laughs> yes. because they didn't really have to retcon Iron Man for a long time because here they just happen to have it set at the very beginning of our involvement in Vietnam. And then by the time we were reading in the 80s, Oh, well, he was just there at the end of Vietnam. <laughs> sure, yes, exactly. Lucky for Marvel, the Vietnam War lasted for <laughs> over a decade. Yes. Uh, am, I, am, am I doing this right? Hello. Is this thing on? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, so anyway, yo, so we get introduced to Transistors for the first time again <laughs> here. And Transistors, at least at the very beginning in this first part of the issue, they aren't quite as misconstrued as they are later through the rest of Iron Man. Uh, pretty much from here on out, transistors are basically another word they use for batteries. Yes. Which is not what transistors are. Here they at least recognize it. It's like, oh no, these transistors allow these other things to be more powerful. Which is kind of what they do. You know, it's 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 so really about first, miniaturization, but still. The first thing we see Tony Stark say is he says, General, you will see my tiny transistor increase the power of that small magnet so tremendously that it will open that locked vault. Oh, come on now, Stark. That just isn't possible. Think so? There. I've switched on the transistor. It's energizing the magnet. The door, it's beginning to budge. Naturally, my tiny transistors are so powerful, they can increase the force of any device a thousandfold. Now, do you believe that the transistors I've invented are capable of solving your problem in Vietnam? Of course, the problem in... <laughs> The problem in Vietnam would turn out to be Vietnam. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so transistors are just going to solve Vietnam. Yes. So anyway, then we get a, a montage of, uh, of Tony Stark, playboy about town. One, another Rock Hudson reference here in terms of comparing him to, uh, to Rock Hudson. And then we head to Vietnam where we see this warlord. Wong Chu. Wong Chu, the red gorilla tyrant. Oh yeah, Wong, Wong Chu, which actually sounds more Chinese than Vietnamese to me, but I, I honestly don't know. Um, but well, I think I think part of the idea in the American imagination was that Red China was secretly behind the Viet Cong. Well, yeah, and 
I'm I'm sure that I'm sure that they were probably uh, uh, sympathetic to each other, if nothing else. But um, the whole idea that there might be genuine opposition to America from within Vietnam itself was something that America was not willing to. We we saw this as you know an outside invasion. We were unwilling to admit that anyone in Vietnam could have actually been opposed to us. Which is why it lasted for as long as it did. <laughs> yes. So, um, so I know that we've talked a little bit about, you know, how Marvel handled ethnic caricatures or racial caricatures, and I feel a little bit icky talking about it a little bit myself as a white American dude myself. That you know, <laughs> judging how excusable or bad this particular racial caricature is, because what say do I have in that? Um, Generally, the skin color in this is not good. Oh, just um, awful. It, this this just yes. very pale piss yellow that Marvel uses for all of its Asian characters for a long, long, long time. And just is just awful. And then they would try to excuse it in the letters pages and they would go like, oh, we only have a very few limited number of colors allowed to us in the four color printing process. But it's bogus. If you can't really can't come up with a good Asian skin tone, then just make them look like white people because basically they do. Yeah. Well, and of course, by the 80s, they were then using more of an orange. Which, well, uh Eventually, with Shang-Chi, uh, Master of Kung Fu, they make they make his father pale yellow, but they make him orange, and then but still clearly not Caucasian, and it's an odd choice that persists yes. on into the nineties. So, uh, but then you know, at the bottom of page three, uh, the close up of Wong Chu's face, it at least looks like a recognizably human face rather than say Chop Chop. Yes. Um, over in the Blackhawk comics or something like that. So, you know, I know it's a low bar uh, to say, <laughs> well, at least this isn't like that kind of buck tooth thick glasses. You know, I mean, this was contemporaneous with Breakfast at Tiffany's um, right. and the uh, the whole offensive Japanese thing in there. You know, given the time, I'm going to go ahead and say they they get a C. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I, I, I once again uh, take any opinion I have on that with a grain of salt, um, since I am not one of the people being portrayed. So anyway, they go into uh, the Vietnam jungle and uh, they are going to test some stuff. And Stark ends up hitting a booby trap, where he ends up setting off a uh, an improvised explosive device. And uh, ends up being unconscious and taken off to the guerrilla headquarters. Uh, so very much like the Iron Man movie at this point, just uh, transposing Vietnam and um, Afghanistan. So then he says, uh, OK, well, he's injured. He's got some shrapnel that will make its way to his heart within a few days. It's like, OK, well, just have him work for me and build weapons for me until that happens. So he takes him off to a laboratory. And then um, on the second day, they throw in another guy who is going to be his assistant. And it turns out that this guy is a famous physicist whom Tony Stark knows by reputation. And he actually says, you were the greatest physicist of all. Then everyone thought you had died. And then it turns out he'd just been in communist slave labor camps ever since. So then he shares with Tony shares with um, with this man his plans 
for the Iron Man armor that he's making, and the guy ends up helping him build it. Then when they finally have it ready to go, the warning light goes off that uh, Wong Chu's uh, men are going to come in, so this guy needs to buy him some time to be able to get this thing online, so he goes out and starts denouncing Wong Chu so that then they have him executed, which then delays them from getting into uh, Iron Man. So, so this is again, all... very much. Yeah, yeah, this is all right out of, or, you know, the entire Iron Man movie is right out of this. He's even got the same name in this case. Yinsen is also the name of this character. At, oh, who is, is it? Yes. Huh. Yes. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Yinsen was lifted directly from this comic and put in the movie. Once again, he's like, oh, yes, I'll help you build this stuff. It's funny. I had remembered that even the element of having the overlapping blueprints where you couldn't tell what he was building, I'd remember that being from this comic as well. So, so, did, so did I. No, no, I, here's the thing. I think when I, because you, you and I have both been rereading these, you know, over, not at the exact same time. I think you started before I did, and then I was reading them later. And I think that I remembered seeing that and mentioning it to you. And so I think your memory of that might be from me telling you that that's what I had seen in here. I think that's, maybe that's what I'm they, I think maybe later they'll retell this flashback and they'll include that element then. Um, they'll retell the origin because I do think that predated the movie, the idea of the overlapping uh, blueprints, which is a really good idea. But this is all right out of the movie where he says, you know, they build this chest device that will keep the shrapnel from going into his heart. And Yinsen says, the life-giving heart of your iron body is ready. Quickly clamp it around your chest. They don't go as far as they do in the movie in terms of like, in the movie... Yinsen says, oh, I know that these pieces of shrapnel will enter your heart because I've seen your bombs used on my village and I've seen people get killed in exactly that way. That hits a lot harder in the movie than this hits here. You know, we don't have this sense of, oh, don't you realize now that, well, he doesn't get blown up by one of his own bombs. That's the big difference is that he doesn't, there's not a sense of like, oh, now I feel bad about being a weapons manufacturer. So the movie takes these this 60s story and recreates it very faithfully but then it adds in these 1970s stories of stark finally realizing in the 1970s that it's bad to be a weapons manufacturer and it combines it beautifully into one story at this point i think there was still the idea of this being the cold war arsenal of democracy you know yes. that it's like you know that being a weapons manufacturer means that you're protecting the west from the communists threat. It, it's funny, you know, uh, all these different stories you hear later of um, Stan Lee talking about where some of these things came from. And uh, you can never take anything at face value that Stan Lee says 20 years down the road, right? Yeah. I mean, he he tells stories. Um, and I think that he believes them when he tells them. Uh, but I have heard him say that, oh, yeah, so we were doing all this neat stuff at Marvel, and we just wanted to see if, if we could actually get away with getting these peacenik hippie kids to actually root for this weapons manufacturer guy. And I'm sitting there thinking, dude, this was 63. I don't think yeah. that was. <laughs> you know? I think you're misremembering things there. Um, and I've heard some other stuff about him talking about uh, uh, Sergeant Fury when we get to that. That's some other stories that he has told about that. That once again, it's like, eh, I don't know how much to believe this, but okay. Uh, anyway, yes. Um, so, yeah, so you were saying this. So why, why don't you go ahead and take over uh, the retelling here? So you were talking about how much this... Um, so we get some really nice panels here of... Heck, showing how hard it would be to walk in the armor 
And he tries to stand up in the armor and instantly topples over on his face. And Heck is doing a good job drawing, you know, him sort of awkwardly toppling over and then sort of lumbering to his feet again and then gradually figuring out how to walk in it. While poor Jensen is just like in the movie, sacrificing his life so that Iron Man will have time to do this. So (laughs) once again, it turns out that he is using his transistors, he says, I'll I'll fasten these suction cups to my palms and turn on my transistor-powered air pressure jets. And he suctions himself to the ceiling and they come in looking for him and they don't see this huge Iron Man suctioned to the ceiling. And... (laughs) That's one strong ceiling. I I hope they didn't just have drop ceiling in that room. You know, that would uh, that would not work well with this. So I think before when you were summing it up, you didn't mention that when Wang Chu conquers a village, he says that he will have a wrestling match. And if any prisoner can defeat him, he will free the whole village. So this comes back to bite him when now he has to. Now he is once again doing one of his wrestling matches. And then Iron Man shows up and Iron Man starts wrestling him and picking him up and throwing him around. And he has now been defeated. They are shooting bullets at Iron Man. We actually get to see some bullets bounce off of Iron Man, which is something they've been reluctant to show with Thor. Then Wang Shu tries to tell everybody, listen, my warriors, 10,000 yen to the one who destroys Iron Man. But Iron Man uh, interferes with the broadcast. Instead, Iron Man takes over the loudspeaker and says, desert Wang Shu, flee into the jungle. So then Wang Chu, that presumably works. Wang Chu is now on his own. He is chasing Iron Man. Then you have one of my favorite, probably my favorite villainous object in the entire Marvel Universe is Iron Man is at the bottom of a flight of stairs. Wang Chu is at the top of a flight of stairs. What good thing, Wang Chu, just in case this happens, he is filled a filing cabinet with rocks. And he <laughs> then pushes the filing cabinet filled with rocks down the steps and it lands on Iron Man. What good forethought this was. He, Iron Man even thinks, ugh, he weighted each drawer of this cabinet with rocks. And then Wong Chu says, now to execute all of my prisoners. But thankfully, Iron Man has transistors. He says, no drawers filled with rocks can hold back iron limbs powered by electronic transistors. So then he follows Wong Chu outside. He sees Wong Chu running away, running by an arms depot. Iron Man shoots a big jet of oil to the arms depot and then takes out a little torch and lights it, lights the jet of oil on fire and it follows back to the arms depot and blows up, killing Wong Chu. And although, of course, many years later when Kirby Siak was drawing the book, it would turn out he wasn't dead. But it certainly seems well, well, like he, he's... He, he really couldn't be dead here anyway because the uh, Comics Code Authority would never allow the hero to actually kill somebody. So they it has to all happen off panel. But yes, it is clearly implied. Clearly implied he's dead here. Seconds later, Iron Man has recharged his batteries and then I've set the prisoners free and the Reds have fled in blind panic. It's all over. Now, Professor Jensen, rest easy. You who sacrificed your life to save mine have been avenged. As for the Iron Man, that metallic Hulk who once was Tony Stark, who knows what destiny awaits him? Time alone will provide the answer. Time alone. But so then, unlike, say, the Hulk issue, where they are then reluctant to say, uh, come back next issue for more Hulk, implying that they knew that was the last issue. Here it says, don't miss more of Iron Man in the next great issue of Tales of Suspense. So they know this is a keeper. They know he's going to be in every issue and that he is sticking around. Growing up, I always sort of assumed that Tony Stark's face was based on Clark Gable. Uh, but then other people have pointed out all sorts of other different folks that he might be based on, uh, including, uh, what's his name, Errol Flynn, or, you know, a number of other different folks. But then someone then pointed out to me, no, it's supposed to be Howard Hughes. Yeah. 
right? Which that would make a lot more sense. You know, somebody who's both a, who's a playboy, who's in Hollywood and, and, uh, an inventor and aviator and all this kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I think this is supposed to be more or less Howard Hughes. Now, also, I believe that Kirby supposedly did the design for Iron Man's armor. And I'm guessing it's probably basically just the cover here that he did, but that Heck designed Tony Stark. Is that your understanding, or do you know? I have no idea. The cover doesn't look like it's drawn by Kirby, though. This cover looks like Heck. Uh, I don't know. The position of Iron Man looks, well, I don't know. Uh, maybe. I, I, I thought that this was Kirby inked by Heck. Yeah, but, that could um, well be. I could be. Yeah. But one way or the other, I know that Iron Man is one of the characters that Kirby claims to have created, you know, years later, even though he never really has any uh, substantial. I mean, honestly, Steve Ditko kind of has probably has more uh, claim to that <laughs> than Kirby does uh, from, you know, from designing the uh, the armor that would sort of become his final uh, look. That was now in the previous episode. So yes, the red and gold armor that Iron Man... So at first, Iron Man's in gunmetal gray, and then eventually he stays with the same armor, which changes to gold, and then eventually he gets the red and gold armor, he is, which basically he had ever since, and that was created by Steve Ditko. Yes, yes. When okay. Iron Man is appears in the MCU, it always says Iron Man created by Stanley, Larry Lieber, and Don Heck. That's always the what they say, because Larry Lieber did script this issue. So you would think Stan would give it his all for the debut of a new hero, but he does not. He has his brother scripted, and it's Larry Lieber does a good job with this issue. Yeah, this is this is one of Larry Lieber's better issues. Um, however, I will say that, you know, he didn't have to say that the filing cabinet was full of rocks. He could have, you know, papers is quite heavy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it would just be, if that thing was just filled with paperwork, that would still be really, really heavy. So um, anyway, <laughs> but other than that, yes, yeah, I think this, that- This um, might be an issue of, of Larry Lieber being judgmental of Don Heck and going like, really, Don Heck, you turned, you showed me, you showed the villain attacking the hero by dropping a filing cabinet on him. Like, what, was it filled with rocks or something? Okay, fine. <laughs> I'll write it that way. I'll mention that it was filled with rocks. Um, um, let me see if there's anything else I want to say. Yeah, I just, I say here in my notes, heck, penciling slash inking isn't that bad, period. We'll get much worse, period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, he, he certainly has his, uh, has his low points when inked by various people and when working on stuff that doesn't suit his strengths. But yeah. that being said, I find that uh, he can be a very, very charming artist. Yes, uh, and and this this issue is uh, a very good um, example of that. Yes. Oh, and then the last thing I'll say, which I'm answer later, like we do not have here the element of Yinsen saying, "Oh, I, you know, don't worry. When we're done with this, I'll be reunited with my family." And then in the movie, then Jensen gets killed and he's like, now I will be reunited with my family. And Tony realizes that his family is dead and that this whole time, that's what he's been talking about is that he's sure he'll die in this whole thing. And that's that's a beautiful bit that the movie added that is not here. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the uh, I mean, that first Iron Man movie just is there's a reason why they were able to build this, uh, you know, pop culture juggernaut of the uh, the MCU franchise off of that, because that movie just hit everything exactly right. Yes. Um, and really sort of set the set the pace for everything else going forward. But, yeah, let's go ahead and get this finished up here so I can uh, hopefully get to bed before 1 a.m. Oh, no, it's already 1 a.m. OK, so um, <laughs> get to bed before 1.30. 
1.30 a.m. Let's say that. So uh, we're going to do Tales to Astonish number 41, starring the Astonishing Ant-Man. Coincidental that the Astonishing Ant-Man would happen to be in Tales to Astonish. Prisoner of the Slave World. You see the Ant-Man trapped in a corner facing a big old ugly looking bug saying, I have only seconds in which to act and no place to turn. And there are some uh, matches over uh, on the floor and a big chain above him. Neither of which have anything to do with this book. This scene, if he's trapped in an alien dimension, which he is, then why are there matches? And what 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 do these matches have to do with anything with this book? It's very strange. Well, I, I, I think this is drawn by Kirby. And he's not doing the inside of the book. And True. so he was just like, oh, I'm just going to draw an, you know, an Ant-Man thing. Oh, sure. He's facing a bug. He's in a, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, so we begin this issue and again, instantly they are throwing Kirby under the bus because the biggest problem with Ant-Man has always been that Kirby had this concept that Ant-Man had to shrink in his own home. And once he was out in the world, he could not shrink or grow. And he had to, and so Kirby's Ant-Man spent most of his time just figuring out how to get around when he was shrunk all the time. And instantly on page one, where we've got, he shows up at, he shows up at another scientist's house. He rings the doorbell. Nobody answers the door, says, hmm, he, maybe he's ill, but says, I can't get in there to find out, but the Ant-Man can. Good thing I've been carrying a spare costume with me lately ever since Kirby left the book. And since I've taken to wearing clothes of unstable molecules, I merely release my reducing gas from its concealed vial. And there, the gas has already taken effect. I'm growing smaller, smaller. So this makes so much more sense than how Kirby was drawing and possibly writing the book in that now he carries around, he's got his tiny Ant-Man costume with him in a little in a little cocaine baggie type thing. And... <laughs> He and he's always got his reducing and growing gas on him. And from now on, he will be shrinking and growing out in the world, which makes so much more sense. Yes. And I love that image of him shrinking down there on that splash on the first page of the, of the story. Yes. Um, I think Don Heck is really doing look once again. I'm just really impressed with the work he did this month in general. Uh, and then, yeah, he, they're, they're, he is he is treated poorly uh, in the future. Yes. But, uh, but yes, uh, this looks good now. Yes. So then Ant-Man enters the scientist's home, finds he's missing, gets suspicious. Uh, then in the days that follow, he finds out about other scientists who have been disappeared. But then instead of going out and solving the issue as Ant-Man, he then <laughs> blunders into solving it because then this guy shows up to wash his windows and says, I'm with a new outfit that just moved to the neighborhood. We're given free trial window cleanings this week. And he goes, oh, fine. My windows could use a good washing. <laughs> and so then, uh, whoops, then the guy, sure enough, fills a bucket with some sort of liquid, but then he dumps the whole bucket of liquid on Hank Pym's head. Hank Pym is then frozen. Uh, my limbs are rigid. I can't even use my vocal cords to speak. Ha, the paralyzing liquid works fast, doesn't it, Pym? Ha, ha, ha. And then he... <laughs> he Kidnaps Hank Pym, takes him to another dimension. At that point, in another dimension in space and time. Kala, the tyrant of this other dimension. Well, but again, they make it clear that this is not an evil alien race, that this is just one evil tyrant who has sort of bent this race to his will, but not for long. So then the window washer then goes ahead and teleports Hank Pym to this other dimension. Uh, it turns out that they've just been paying a earth window washer to... Uh, kidnap scientists for them. 
says, just make sure you pay me in gold. Your paper money wouldn't be worth beans on my world. So the other scientists go like, oh, no, it's Hank Pym. He's been kidnapped, too. And then Pym quickly figures out that he needs to be alone. So he says, down with all tyrants, down with Kula. And they go, don't, Pym, you'll be punished. Why? Why did he do it? But he's taken off to solitary, which is, of course, exactly where he needs to be because he can now shrink out in the world. So then he shrinks himself down. He's got his little costume baggie. He takes it out. He runs into some alien bugs. He tries to control them. He can't, even though they have antenna. It's not the same antenna. He then sets off an electronic alarm, and they realize that, that he's there. They are trying to stop him. He is trying to fight them in various ways. And then they hit him with the paralyzing juice again, and then they're going to smash him with a hammer. But Ant-Man has finally learned to communicate with the strange alien bugs of this world and bend them to his will, and he has them trigger a gun, which shoots Kala. And then it turns out that all of the good people on this planet then rise up against Kala. Luckily, the window watcher is arriving with another prisoner just then. The good people of the dimension have taken over. The scientists say to the window washer, it was you who turned against your fellow humans and caused us to be imprisoned here. He goes, so what? Kala offered me a fortune. It was worth the chance. Anyway, you can't do anything to me. You ain't policemen. And then the other members of Kala's dimension say, but we can do something. We shall keep you here as our prisoner until you have truly reformed. And so then they keep him there. And then the scientists return. And keep in mind, these are the most brilliant men on Earth. But they say, but one thing bothers me. How did the Ant-Man reach that other dimension? And where is he now? I can't figure that one out either. I guess we'll never learn the answer. And then Henry Pym says, perhaps it doesn't matter how the Ant-Man gets where he does. Just so we know that whenever he's needed, he's always there. The end. Nope. This is one of the things that oft, that often bugs me when heroes travel outside of their usual geographic region. Yes. Because uh, almost always something where their alter ego is traveling somewhere out of town and then something happens and they have to turn into their superhero guys, very much like here. And it's just sort of like, oh, but then, you know, okay, you can play that off once, but then, you know... <laughs> When it's like, well, wait a minute, that time when you were visiting Latveria for something, <laughs> Daredevil happened to show up. And that was weird. But then there was that other time when you like were taking a ocean trip somewhere else, and then suddenly Daredevil shows up in Antarctica, you know? <laughs> like, wait a minute, I'm starting to see a pattern here. So th this does not make a pattern, but, you know, eventually any of this sort of stuff is going to uh, pile up. Hey, these are the most brilliant men on earth and they can't figure it out. So, you know, it must be a good plan. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, you know, this is a, uh, this is a decent issue. Uh, like I said, I, I actually like hex art in this one. Um, yes, it has the whole thing of, you know, Hey, interdimensional aliens have the technology to do all this crazy stuff. And yet they're just paying a, win and a human window washer in gold <laughs> to go and bring them scientists. And like, I don't quite get that, but you know, okay. Um, but overall, um, I think that this is a decent, I mean, for as loopy as, as aggressively bonkers as Ant-Man stories usually are, this one is not outside of the realm of ordinary for him. In many well, ways. I mean, we've, you know, we've had a change of guard. Kirby has gone. Kirby has been bringing a lot of loopiness to this book. And now, you know, the obviously we're about to have the big change when we're going to go ahead and have the Wasp join. 
And uh, that does not happen yet. So we've got sort of a gradual transition to the post-Kirby state on the book. And But I think this is a good issue. I think Heck does do a good job. And I am so relieved to have... You know, so, you know, so obviously the number one change is that with Hank able to grow and shrink now out in the world, that means less worry about how he's going to get around town, which means no antipult. We don't have him shooting himself out of his house. I don't think we're ever going to see that again. I think that goes with Kirby, him shooting himself out of his house with a little cannon and landing on a pile of ants. Well, and, and you know, I think that I said in an earlier episode that uh, when Kirby leaves the book, you know, some of the, a big part of the engine of just delirious bonkers imagination that made the Ant-Man book what it was can't be carried on by anybody else. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, they replace it with other stuff, as you say, you know, they bring in sort of the romantic comedy kind of back and forth with the wasp when she comes in. So, all right. Well, this has been an epic recording session. It is 1.14 a.m. in Greensboro, North Carolina, where you live. Um, <laughs> we uh, and I don't know if I'm going to get in my exercise tonight because it's 12.14 in Evanston, Illinois, where I live. But this was an excellent bunch of comics. It has been a huge sea change in the Marvel Universe, and to a certain extent, a sea change in my, you know, I was always a big person going like, if these people had been writing the books as much as they later said they did, then there would have been more of a sense of the books changing hands when they left. But man, now that I'm reading the books more closely, I'm like, these books kind of do feel like they have new writers on them, or at least, you know, but again, it's unclear if that's because new artists came in and said, let's overturn what Jack was doing, or if it's Stan himself, because the changes are so comprehensive across a bunch of different books that all had different new artists on them. It almost seems like Stan was reasserting himself on these books and he was going uh, like, okay, let's, I've been sort of at war with Kirby and Kirby has been writing things in and I've been sort of saying in the dialogue how sort of silly these things are. And now that Kirby has gone off four of his five books, let's clean house and get rid of some of the Kirby silliness on these books. I, I think so. I mean, I, I think that when it came down to it is that Stan recognized that Kirby and Ditko were both next level talents in terms of storytelling in general. And I think that he really developed the so-called Marvel method because he had these two singular talents to feel that he could and even should offload some of that storytelling to them because they were in some ways better story, you know, that not just in some ways, they were really better storytellers overall and that, you know, collaborating with them could only increase things. I think that a lot of the other artists, I think that he didn't quite have that same trust in and he was probably writing those a little bit more closely but when it comes to jack you know jack is older than stan jack was the hot shot coming in creating captain marvel for sorry captain marvel creating uh, captain america for marvel uh, or timely as it was called back then while stan was just a teenage nepotism hire doing low level you know writing assignments for his what is it his his um his uncle-in-law i think it was or something like that right and so i think that to some extent he probably felt like he was lucky to have jack and if jack wanted to do he couldn't necessarily say look jack we're not doing that right so uh you know like jack that's a bad idea let's just not (laughs) do that anymore right i don't think I, i get the impression that he didn't necessarily feel that he 
could do that. Um, you know, he could try to do what he could to try and fix things in the dialogue. But then I think once he goes, he can be like, okay, I can tell these, uh, I feel fine telling Al Hartley, you know, <laughs> or telling Don Heck, hey, this is the way things are now. Um, yes. and, uh, so that, that's the impression I get. But once again, we're all the spitballing here. Um, it's, it's all a guessing game to, to a large extent. Yep. Okay. Well, um, good. Uh, it's been good. And I, uh, have a bed waiting for me. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and bow out here. Thank you everybody for listening in America or anywhere in the world. We very much appreciate having you, uh, tune in and, uh, we will talk to you again in our next episode. Okay. Good night, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.